It's Friday, May 31st, 2019, and this is episode 70 of Plundergrounds, Sci-Fi Books, Part 1, Dystopias. Take it away, Logan. Plundergrounds, Plundergrounds, welcome back to a brand new show. Ray's gonna take you where you didn't know you wanted to go. Fantasy and dungeon delve, science fiction, watch yourselves. I've decided that as much as I love to read and as much as I love to talk about books, I'm going to use my Fridays for a while to do book lists until until I get tired of it anyway. I have been working towards my top 10 list of foundational science fiction reads. I actually think I have it settled, but I'm going to um, kind of ease up on it here because science fiction is a lot broader genre than fantasy. It has a lot more rabbit holes. And I want to do a best of breed list. So today we're going to talk about dystopias, and I'm going to do like a top five list of dystopian works, and then one of those works, and I won't tell you which because we'll, we'll save that for the top ten list, one of the works is go, going to go on to be the representative dystopian work in the top ten foundational science fiction reads. But I couldn't not mention some of these others, so here we go, uh, my top five dystopian science fiction reads. I'm going to take this top five list in chronological order. So, so the order of their writing or publication. And I think it might surprise you because there are some big dystopian novels that everyone knows, and we tend to think of those as the, the Fountainhead works. But uh, they, well, for instance, 1984 comes, I think, in the middle of this list. So that gives you an idea. Uh, I spoiled one there, but I, I think we all knew that I was going to list 1984. So the first one, I think it's going to be a little bit of a surprise. It's the novel We by Yevgeny Zemyatin. It was written in 1920, uh, obviously a Russian author. And it has that kind of early science fiction, Baroque feel that you see in things like Metropolis. You know, it's, it's uh, an ornate and slightly grungy vision of the future. It's not so polished and cleaned up as visions from later authors. It uh, posits a world where everything is run on a schedule. In fact, it's uh, kind of modeled off of like train schedules. So the whole world kind of runs on on time. Uh, there's schedules for everything. And the main characters are uh, assigned to uh, sleep with each other uh, based on this schedule. So it's got kind of a, a selective breeding, um, you know, eugenics kind of idea behind it as well. Uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, kind of shades of that uh, communism to come, uh, share and share alike and everybody's equal kind of thing. So, um, you know, it's your typical dystopian novel where you've got uh, a picture of a future that's really locked down, and then you've got a character who is a bit of a free spirit, a bit of, a bit of a creative, a bit of a dreamer, and uh, tries to buck the system, finds ways to sneak around to do that, um, and is constantly worried about getting caught, and then things, you know, kind of go south from there. Uh, that's a typical pattern for dystopian novels. What's really enjoyable about dystopian novels, honestly, is mostly that initial vision of the future, I think. I, I tend to lose interest in them as they go, unless they have really good characters, and this one's no different. I think what, what the strengths of this one is, is that it's uh, stylistically very interesting, 
and uh, that it um, you know it portrays a, a pretty interesting dystopia that's hyper organized and you know most dystopias are disguised as utopias right like they they are a vision of what somebody thinks would be the perfect world and why um, it wouldn't be so perfect. So that's a cool one, and not uh, one that not a lot of people have read. There's several translations of it out there. Uh, I don't know that I recommend one over another, but We by Yevgeny Zemyatin, 1920. That's my first one. Number two is Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. I think we all knew this one was coming. It was written in 1932. Brave New World is yet again one of those that tends to lose my interest as we go forward. But the first couple chapters, oh my gosh, the first couple chapters are so good. Uh, 1932, um, we're, we're having a vision of this process by which babies are born. I can't remember the name of it, but it's like the uh, Boskoff, I don't know, it's got a funny name to it. But it's a process where they take uh, embryos and they split them multiple times so that you get little clusters of individuals born and they do different things to the all all birth is artificial and they do different things to the developing fetus to make it suitable for being part of its class so i remember for instance that they i haven't read this in a long time so i'm going off of memory but i remember that they uh have some that they want to be able to work in uh, zero gravity so they uh constantly shift the canister around so there's no right side up <laughs> uh, they um, intentionally make some worker types who are, uh, I don't want to say dumber, but yeah, they, they kind of like, you know, retard their intellect so that they uh, will be happy in their proletariat role. And then, of course, there's just the select few who are the elite. Uh, it is, in some ways, I think a more real- realistic vision of the future. Well, maybe not anymore. Uh, things are changing. But at, at one time, I felt like it was a more realistic vision of the future than 1984 because it's a hedonistic future. Um, everybody takes drugs to be happy, called Soma. That's right. You probably have heard Soma before used as a, a meme. And like I, I've seen it in uh, uh, punk and rock culture, for instance, um, and on, on in television shows. But Soma is the drug of choice. A, a, a dram is better than a dam, as they as they say. So stop caring and take your dram as so, Soma. Uh, people are bullied almost, and encouraged to the fo- to the point of being uh, heavily peer pressured into uh, these crazy sports. Uh, I think they have one called elevator squash. Uh, they, they they've developed just really intricate sports to entertain themselves. Um, you are encouraged not to develop one sexual partner, so there's a lot of sleeping around, and everybody kind of has to sleep with everybody. Um, and there's, as I recall, there's not a. Um, I don't think you can say no. I'm not sure. I can't remember that, but so it's, it's really interesting. Uh, as the novel develops, you have a guy who's a bit more of an introvert. Uh, he doesn't really feel like he fits in. Um, and uh, there's a visit to uh, a quote-unquote reservation where people live naturally and there's an encounter with a guy there who kind of represents uh, you know the natural way of doing things Uh, it's it's interesting I don't have a lot to say about that Um, there was one other thing I wanted to say though what was that Uh, oh crud I may have to stop the recording if this doesn't come to my brain I'm missing something about this. Oh, yes. So all the all the births are, uh, as I mentioned, are uh, artificial. And so 
when people talk about mothers or a family or whatever, it creeps everybody out. The idea of having a mother or being, you know, emotionally, physically attached to a mother just makes everybody shudder and go, ew, ew, you know, gross. Um, and so that's, uh, that's, I think that in itself is interesting. I, it makes me think of back in the 50s, uh, mothers were heavily encouraged to use formula instead of breastfeeding. And uh, I believe they even uh, sort of pretended that it was healthier for the baby to, to do that. And, uh, you know, back when um, all the food, there was a lot of artificial foods being developed like Jello and uh, shake and bake and all those kind of things. And there was a, a lot of uh, heavy TV dinners, you know, come from that era. There was a lot of a push to do things artificially, and I think this is like an early vision of that. Okay, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, 1932. That's number two. Number three, 1984 by George Orwell, which was written in, uh, well, actually it was written in 1948, published in 1949, uh, and that's only important because 1984 is just uh, the last two digits of the year in which it was written switched, so 48 became 84. Uh, if I think Orwell knew it was going to be published in 1949, he might have made it 1994, I don't know, but... This is, uh, you know, the classic work. Big Brother is watching. It's uh, kind of a, I wouldn't call it a police state. Yeah, sure, it's a police state um, where everything you do is watched. Everybody has their jobs. Uh, everything is efficient. The world is simplified. You have a, a, a different way of speaking. They've taken out all the figurative language and all the, all the fancy words. And so now things, instead of being excellent or awesome or... Uh, you know, fantastic. They are double plus good. That would be a, you know, they're not just good, they're plus good. And if they're really good, they're double plus good, right? Uh, and everything's described, you know, according to that base vocabulary. There was a linguist around, oh, I think it was before this, but his name was I.A. Richards, and he was pushing for uh, a common vocabulary of a couple hundred words. And he was doing it, I think, primarily for language sharing so that you could become proficient in multiple languages, but also just pushing this idea of language simplification. And I think that's where some of that comes from. One of the best things about uh, 1984 is some of the sayings in it um, about, uh, oh, I'm not going to be able to remember them off the top of my head. I should be able to quote these um, about, uh, you know, lies and truth and uh, like war is peace, for instance, is. Um, so the idea that a status, a, um, status quo is good. You've got these major world powers, and they're kind of constantly at war. And because they're constantly at war, um, it's the same as peace. Everything is, is stabilized, if you will, in kind of a, a gridlock or a deadlock of war. And uh, you got um, you know the different ministries pumping out news. Um, so the main character, you know, again, like we... Uh, he's a guy who's, who um, wants to be free. He has dreams. He's, uh, again, sex. I don't know why sex comes into a lot of these, but boy, it sure does. There's only one of these on the list that isn't uh, focused somewhat on sex. And so there's something about dystopia and sex. Maybe just that sex is the symbol of being crazy and free and uninhibited. Uh, and so that's the first thing you want to squash in a utopian society. I don't know, but uh, it does seem like it's, it's part of a lot of these. So the main character here clearly wants to sleep with this gal um, and she represents for him uh, freedom and, uh, you know, an independent spirit 
And so they sneak off and, you know, things things go south. All right, 1984, it's a must-read if you've never read it. Of the three that I've said so far, I would say that's the one you really have to read. Um, the next one probably fits in that category as well. Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. This was written in 1953. What an awesome story this one is. This is one that's exciting all the way through. Um, you've got the main character who's a fireman and his job is to go around and burn books. Uh, but he secretly hoards books. He's, he loves books. He's got a wife who is super checked out. Uh, all she does is watch, uh, she, they have a, a TV room that's essentially where all the walls are TVs or, or one big TV, I forget which. And so, she, you know, she spends her life um, interacting with these TV shows, which is kind of cool. They have scripted dialogue so that um, you know what the characters are going to say and then the, the shows leave blanks so you can speak your part. So that's I think that's kind of a neat idea. Um, she goes to sleep every night with little shells in her ears listening to music or, or talks, uh, voices talking. And that really hits home for me because I go to sleep with, with earbuds in listening to audiobooks and it makes me feel a little, um, I don't know, uh, weird and uh, about doing that when I read Fahrenheit 451. Uh, and of, of course, again, we got a character who's worried about being caught by this uh, heavy-handed state. Uh, he finds a, a girl who, um, you know, represents more natural uh, freedom. Actually, this reminds me. So the tarot, the tarot card, the lovers. If you ever look at that card, you've got a. Um, You've got kind of a fall from grace idea going on there. So uh, at the top, you have a woman who is kind of classical and spiritual and, uh, you know, she's in the clouds, um, the perfection of womanhood, I guess. And then you've got a guy and a gal standing in front holding hands, usually naked. And that rep represents like a carnal relationships or um, I don't want to say just lust because it's also love, but it's... it's um, you know, a more natural love. It's a more real love. They're flawed. They're human beings. And uh, the tarot card from a male point of view is in some ways about exchanging one for the other, um, exchanging the sort of carnal, um, real, imperfect, but lovely and uh, amazing experience of being involved with a real person uh, versus this ideal woman uh, you know, that is the thing you think you want or the thing that represents everything that is perfect about womanhood. Or, um, and I, so I think that is going on a little bit in these novels where, you know, these characters sometimes already have a mate, uh, but uh, that's one prescribed for them by the state. It's, quote-unquote, the perfect mate for them in, in, in the eyes of the state. Um, but then they have the idea of having unrestricted love and sex uh, with a woman that seems wilder and more carnal, you know, that it's the kind of exchanging of that ideal for the, for the real. Um, or you could look at it the other way around too. It's the exchanging of the real for the ideal. I'm not sure it kind of plays off both ends of that, but I, th I think that's an interesting observation. Anyway, that happens a little bit in Fahrenheit 451 too. One of the coolest things about Fahrenheit 451 is that, uh, the main character, and this is just an incidental detail, but I love it. The main character is hunted by a robot dog. That's scary as hell. Um, you know, that has a mechanical scent, uh, that, so it never fails. And, uh, well, it's like a little bit like being chased by 
by the Terminator or something. So uh, Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury, 1953. Another amazing book. If you've never read it, you just have to. That's You just have to. You don't have a choice. Go read it. Um, the last one is uh, more of a personal choice, I'm going to say. Um, it's from 1967. It is Logan's Run by William F. Nolan. Now, uh, let me get the movie out of the way first. The first half of the movie is just fine. I kind of enjoy it, in fact. Uh, it is not exactly like the book, but it's close enough to get the spirit of it. The second half of the movie, after they've escaped from the domes and uh, you know they're outside with Peter Ustinov and his cats in the ruins of Washington, D.C., that's uh, kind of crap for me. I don't like that. I don't like the ending of the, of the movie, and it is nothing like the book at all. The book is quite amazing. It's a bunch of really short chapters. They're really inventive. There's all kinds of cool stuff. You get to see Logan uh, through his various clock stages in the early chapters. I think you get to see him as a um, you know, in the uh, as a toddler, and I think they ride mechanical brooms and stuff. Like, you know, there's some weird games in, in the maze, but you quickly get into that world that that you think of as being the first part of the movie. Uh, again, lots of free love, free sex, um, you know, going on. And uh, actually, I think that completes it. I didn't think Fahrenheit 451 was a lot about sex, but and it isn't. It's less true there, but they all have this, uh, you know, a preoccupation with free love, I guess. Let's just call it. Uh, but this one's really that because it's, you know, 1967, right? Summer of Love. Uh, that was the year I was born. I was born late that year, so um, I really was. Uh, my, it was more like the early spring of love for my parents, I guess. <laughs> they started early on the summer of love, so I could get born uh, by November. Uh, but yeah, I just, I really love this book. I need to go back and read it again. It used to be hard to find in print. Um, now, there's a ton of like used copies, so you can very easily get a copy with the movie stills in it, uh, you know, wedged into the middle. Um, there are two sequels, which I have never read. That's one of these days I want to get back to reading the first one again so I can read, uh, I think it's called Logan's Search and Logan's World or something like that. But uh, Logan's Run, awesome book. You should totally read it. I think there's some oddity about the authorship. Like maybe there was a second author that worked on it as well. I'm not really sure about that. I know William F. Nolan has written a couple of other small things, but this was his one sort of big work. Uh, and in that sense, I, I think a lot of these are, well, not, uh, some of these are one-offs. Like I don't know a lot of Aldous Huxley novels or Yevgeny Zamyatin novels. Uh, there are, and George Orwell, even this is by far his most famous work. Although, um, what is it? Shooting an elephant and, and some other, he has some other short works that are somewhat popular. Ray Bradbury is the alone on this list as somebody who wrote a lot of really popular books, but that's, that's my top five. We, Brave New World, 1984, Fahrenheit 451, and Logan's Run. If you have a favorite dystopia that I did not cover, please call it in. I'm curious. It might be something I've read. It might not be something I've read. Um, I'll just let you know that I am doing post-apocalyptic fiction in a different list. So let's not confuse dystopia with post-apocalyptic uh, works. I don't know why we would confuse those, but sometimes people do. Um, I don't know if I need to define dystopia, but I, th I think I've already talked about it a little bit. It's this idea of a quote-unquote perfect future um, that isn't quite so perfect. And uh, again, my rules were nothing after 1980 or nothing from 1980 forward. So your favorite dystopia might well be from uh, from 
beyond that. For instance, I know a lot of people like wool. Uh, I didn't love it, but there were some neat things in wool. Uh, and uh, that one's clearly, uh, I think that was written in, I don't know, maybe seven, eight years ago. So not that long ago. There you go. I hope you enjoyed it. Let me know what you like. Uh, I've got lists to cover. I'm going to cover invasion and post-apocalyptic novels together. I'm going to cover military science fiction. I'm going to cover space opera, um, probably alien contact. And then I may not do uh, the others by grouping. So, for instance, like time travel before 1980, I don't think there's enough time travel novels that I want to mention. Um, so I'll probably and like social science fiction and some of those. There's only two or three of each of those. So I'm going to do a, a group at the end that kind of covers some different, uh, you know, like cyberpunk before 1980. There's not a whole lot. Uh, you got Philip K. Dick and and William Gibson um, and uh, Sterling. Bad. I don't know. So. Um, you know, I'm, I'll probably do the rest of them as a little bit of a grouping, but you can look forward to those. Uh, every Friday I'll be bringing you book lists and I still got some others to get to. Dan has suggested I do a, a top audio uh, book fantasy novels and I would love to do that. So I may work that one in the mix in this longer series of science fiction novels. Have a good weekend and uh, open a book. <laughs>